Hello, and welcome to Moral of Story Podcast. Uh, as many of you may have noticed, this episode is released a little later than usual. Uh, I was struggling a little bit last week with actually some of the things that we will discuss today in this episode. We'll be discussing a little bit about trauma and the effects that it can have on you in your life later on. And so this one I kind of discussed going to college for the first time and how things can kind of start to haunt you. Uh, the thing that I was struggling with earlier this week is not really mentioned like in this podcast episode because it talks a lot about the things that happened with me and Seth and like the after effects of that where what I was going through this week kind of had more to deal with losing the friends in the sophomore year. Ever since then, uh, if I get in a single argument with the friends that I have now, my mind kind of just goes to this thought that I should be preparing and so I'll, I guess preparing for them to leave me in a way. So what I do is like I spend so much of my time with these intrusive thoughts of like, oh, what am I going to do on the weekend? Do I have a backup? Because they probably don't want to see me. And I was also like questioning a lot of the things that I believed because I felt like they were against me on it, but that's not really the case. It was just what my anxiety was telling me. And I know that. And one thing that I don't think people realize with anxiety is you can know that it's unreasonable and irrational, but that doesn't really make it a lot. It doesn't make it any easier to think through it and overcome it. And so like I knew it. And so I was trying not to feed into those thoughts, but it still took me a few days to recover from that. But I finally got around to recording this episode. And so with nothing more to say, we can finally begin. Prior to entering college in July, I had realized that I had an opportunity to get tickets for the Penn State versus OSU football game. And because I knew Seth, was a fan of Penn State because of his uncle who once played for them. I asked if he would like the tickets for him and his brother, and he agreed. I knew even then that it would hurt to see him again, because although people attempted to comfort me with saying time heals all wounds, I was regressing, as I forgot all the good and kind things Seth had done and all the times he stood by me. Instead, I guilt-tripped myself for all the times I suppressed my concerns until they came out in a drunk, angry, and unreasonable text. I remember all the times I would attempt to communicate with passive-aggressive remarks towards the effort and care he was putting in, into which perhaps the most popular text I would would receive from him was, is that a shot? Because I was hurting and was aiming to hurt him to resolve the issue and thus resolving nothing at all. I remember all the times I gave power to needless fears and all the hurtful things that were said to me in response to my behavior, including horn dog a self-righteous alcoholic, and how he said he hated seeing me at parties. I remember all these things, because before he even said them, I was thinking all those things about myself, and I internalized them, because they rang with truth, and rather than believing that I could better myself and work on these things, I felt that I was a lost cause and incapable of being someone worthy of love from another. I was not so much afraid that I could not find the right person for me, but that I could never be the right person for them. I suppressed all these thoughts into my, until they entered my subconscious, unaware or perhaps in denial that the wounds were festering and going unchecked. As I began college, 
I had hoped that time away from Seth in the distance would give me the ability to move past everything. But I was in an unfamiliar environment, challenged with creating a whole new friends group and support system after I had finally found stability in my own at home. My social anxiety had never been higher, and as the anxiety of finding friends and balancing classes and coursework for the first time in college increased, all the past wounds flared up with it. I began crying because I was homesick, as all these things got worse and things felt less and less familiar. The nocturnal panic attacks and nightmares began. Many of them started as something as small as an, as an argument between me and Seth, and as I was attempting to explain myself, not feeling I can find the words to communicate correctly, and being misunderstood, as he got more annoyed and frustrated, and my breathing became more and more difficult. As the November date of the football game approached, I realized I was going to have to face Seth another time, and I had hated myself far more than I did when we first broke things off. The nightmares became more frequent. However, they also intensified and became worse. When I would wake up, I was still catching my breath, and I would have to sit up in the bed fully awake and try to shake it away before laying back down only to find that the dream would pick up right where it left off. They continued through the night. They would start before I was fully asleep, and they were present even when I took short naps. It went so far that I no longer wanted to go to bed anymore, because my refuge of sleep infiltrated with fear, anxiety, and lack of control, and became an embodiment of everything I hated about myself, and started the second I closed my eyes. I stopped sleeping. I stopped eating as I often do when the symptoms of anxiety set in. Although many people joke about gaining the freshman 15, in the first three months of college, I had lost roughly 10 to 12 pounds, nearly a tenth of my weight. Not only that, but the month before the game, I resorted to my old habits to prove that I didn't care, as well as trying to escape from all the stress I was experiencing, and I kissed another person. I felt nothing from it, and I was beginning to feel nothing at all, other than the fear for the upcoming event. I stopped going to bars in fear that I might see him there, and I might upset him like I did in high school by making a fool of myself when I was drinking. Meanwhile, my sisters were struggling to find all the tickets they needed and began pulling strings, and I began to feel guilty for requesting the tickets, and after she found them, I discovered that mine were the only ones in the price range, so I averaged the cost of all three for Seth, his brother, and I, and charged them for the average, meaning that I paid an extra $40 for them to go. A few days prior to the game, I had realized that Seth was planning on taking his ticket and meeting up with his brother's friends, and I would not see him during the game or the pregame that day. I asked if I would see him afterwards since I knew that it was hard for my sisters to find all the tickets, and it was a large favor for us to pull off, but he said, I'm sure we'll just run into each other eventually, and I knew deep down that that was probably not likely. Finally, the day before the game, I was ex excused to leave my studio early so that I could hitch a ride with one of my sister's friends that was a ball attending Ball State since I did not have my own car. On the way out of Muncie, on wheeling, we began picking up speed to roughly 45 miles an hour as we left the city. Maybe only 20 feet in front of us, a white truck pulled out. Before I could so much as blink, I remember a, a loud deafening bang, a jolt, and suddenly being in an entirely different situation. I gasped for air after the airbags knocked me hard in the diaphragm. The driver of my car was leaning over, panicking, asking if I was okay and apologizing because in the heat of the moment, she had pressed on the accelerator instead of the brake. I felt terrible because I knew I was fine, 
but I was wheezing because I got the wind knocked out of me. And I couldn't tell her that it wasn't her fault or in, and that I was okay considering the circumstances. So I held up a finger to tell her one second. When I could talk, I said, I doubt we, we accelerated that much or would have slowed down if we hit the brakes. And it took two breaths to get the words out. And then I took the time to catch my breath before asking, do we get out of the car? She guided me to the place on the curb in the parking lot since I did not know where to go. I remember never once looking through the windshield or looking back towards the car as I got out, careful to only look at the ground because I was not ready to see what I was walking away from. I called my mom while the bystanders checked up on us and called 911. We went into the ambulance as the firefighters and EMTs kept telling us that we were lucky. When I pushed myself off the curb to walk to the ambulance, I realized the pain in my wrist and realized I must have broken it. After taking our vitals, the firefighters brought our bags in to the vehicle that we had for the weekend so that we could bring them into the car of my driver's friends that was going to take us to the hospital since we didn't want to pay for the ride in the, ambul in the ambulance. That's when the man told us that if we had gone just a few miles an hour faster, we would have been underneath the vehicle and likely killed on scene. The EMTs, the firefighters, and cops and nurses at the hospital kept popping their heads in because they were shocked that not only were we alive, we were almost perfectly okay, other than that we were sore and my wrist was minorly fractured. We were in the emergency room for several hours, and as my driver's mom brought us the rest of the way home from Monty, I realized that my ears were still ringing because of the noise of the wreck. My brothers and sisters that were going to the game with me were waiting for me at home. My mom tried to convince me not to go, but I insisted that I, want, that I wanted to. So we left for another two-hour drive, only in six hours after the previous collision. On the way, I panicked, lost my breath, from the panic attacks, which only felt worse from the impact of the airbag, and even cried. I sat in Rose's house in Columbus, trying to finish the movie I started on Netflix in the emergency room, with my splinted wrist propped up on a case of beer and a bag of frozen vegetables on top. I got up the next day wanting to take it easy, when my sibling insisted the best way to cure the pain was an Irish coffee with Bailey's. So I had a cup and then tried to do my makeup well enough to cover up the small bruises on my cheekbone, and I went to the game. I felt disoriented and overwhelmed the entire time. Although I had fun, I was struggling the entire time, just trying to get through the day. I was overexerting myself, and finally I went to this, a St. Henry house in Columbus in hopes that maybe I saw Seth there. But I never took into consideration that since my body was under so much distress, I would be hammered off, to, hammered off of three or four beers, even without ever feeling the buzz. I left as Seth showed up, not realizing he was there, and went to the bar as I got kicked out for being underage. I found my sister on the street with her friends, and I told her everything about Seth, and that's when I had the worst mental breakdown of my entire life in a raising canes. I couldn't breathe, and it was the first time I experienced tunnel vision from a panic attack. I could not stand and had to take several breaks on the way back to Rose's house, because my body was so overwhelmed mentally and physically. Standing and walking became too difficult. I was in bed before 12 that night, and when I went back to college, I finally accepted I can't live like this anymore and registered for counseling. However, the counseling center was at full capacity, so I had to attend a group meeting in which they talked about mind traps and what counseling was, was like, and I remember them hyping up their condom giveaway 
and I remember feeling myself shut off because I knew the reason why I was there was the hookup culture I caved to and was all the worse for it. So I began to withdraw because I felt that I couldn't tell my story with the glorification of sex on college campus, on college campuses, spreading the message that it didn't matter. I felt especially guilty because I had agreed and consented to everything that happened to me and even encouraged it at times. But what no one bothers to mention or teach you is that you can still have a difficult time mentally with the subject, even if it was not harassment, assault, or rape, but your own free choice. Therefore, when the semester finished, I turned to Eucharistic adoration, as I always do, and I especially needed guidance. I oddly felt compelled to text him and tell him to attend Eucharistic adoration that day for himself, but I felt miserable talking to him because I had convinced myself that he didn't want to ever see me again. So he said he might, might later after getting back from his girlfriends, and I thought that would be the end of the conversation. I went out drinking that day since my friends had offered, even though it was a week it was a weekday. We were also on winter break and drank away the, and I drank away the anxiety of talking to him again. To much of my surprise, he went and thanked me for requesting that he go. Then he made the mistake of asking me why I, while I was drunk, why I was upset or anxious to text him. And I sent a whole Bible-length paragraph that told him that I was afraid to be around him or see him in public because I cannot breathe and began having panic attacks, and I alluded to the panic attack in Columbus. I don't remember what his response was, but I remember refusing to reread what I sent the next day because I felt, felt so ashamed, and I didn't think I'd talk to him again for a very long time after that. I also didn't realize that he had a girlfriend until that night and began to struggle with the fact that I was falling apart even months later, and only getting worse rather than better, and he was fine and unfazed. So once more, roughly two weeks later, I used my usual unhealthy coping mechanism. That was the last time I ever kissed someone, because I was finally at what felt like rock bottom, and couldn't keep with living with repeating the same stupid cycle that I had in the past, only hurting myself even more rather than solving anything, and I was so sick and tired of running. Furthermore, I was still struggling with getting back into a car. I had clenched my jaw and became on edge every time I sat in the passenger seat. I wanted to overcome the fear, but since I didn't have a car in college, it was rare that I was in a vehicle at this time. However, I had found that the panic attacks were less intense if I sat in the back, stayed focused on my phone instead of the road, or was driving myself. But it was difficult not to stare and become alert of everything on the road when I was just a passenger as if that was going to stop anything if I were to see anything coming. Additionally, due to insurance issues, for a simple fracture, I had to see five doctors, and it wasn't until the fifth doctor that one would suggest looking into counseling if I was struggling with the trauma of the collision. To this day, I still feel that I, I need to be the one driving if the drive is longer than 20 minutes or goes on the interstate. And although that was not the way we got into the wreck, I feel especially anxious when my driver rides the rear of the car in front of us or speeds excessively. Not long into the second semester of my freshman year, I began overcoming, I began becoming increasingly close with Preston. My other college friends were encouraging us to get together. They even planned on coming late to lunch just to get us to get alone together. I began to think of the possibility of dating someone for the first time in what felt like eons. I did really like Preston and enjoyed being around him, but I was afraid of being hurt. 
That is when the nightmares kicked back in, way worse than ever. Instead of choosing to sit up at, sit up in bed after awaking from a dream, I felt like I had no choice but to sit up if I ever wanted to catch my breath. I would wake up in the middle of the night with a panic attack, nearly wheezing it as tears came down my face, and I would look over at my roommate, so afraid that I may have awakened her, and thankful that she was a he heavy sleeper. Not only have these dreams changed in their intensity, they often replaced Seth with Preston. Often the subject matter didn't seem like a big deal, or even something that would trigger a panic attack in real life, but somehow tore away at me more than anything. One dream, I was with Preston, and we were about to kiss, when I stopped and looked at him, about to ask, wait, do you even care? But never got the chance to say it before the air in my lungs abandoned me. That's when I woke up gasping and crying and went back to bed with a new dream with the same theme and unable to breathe once more. When it became a regular thing to wake up at least three times in the night from nightmares, I called the counseling center another time. And this time I got an appointment. I tried my best to explain the situation, although I never had to do so before and was struggling to put a whole year or two worth of words into one session. The counselor had tried to follow the story but kept interrupting to make suggestions and was almost insisting that I was sexually assaulted or never truly gave consent. And I explained perhaps a dozen times that that was not the case. So instead she suggested that I was feeling that way out of Catholic guilt. Because in the packet I had filled out prior to the meeting, I had marked that my religion was important to me. And when it asked what religion I belonged to, I had marked Catholic. Hearing the words Catholic guilt was quite possibly the biggest blow I've ever received while I trusted someone to understand the suffering I was experiencing. Never until this point in my life had I heard the phrase Catholic guilt. And from that point, I resented the phrase because the alienating and demeaning nature that blames my faith for the damage I endured. It tears away from the important role it has played in not only pulling me away from ending my life, but also the role in regenerating my self-respect and ability to forgive myself. It was the worldly views, not my Catholic faith, that encouraged me to believe that I could fool around with other people and objectify myself and others for mere self-gratification and ignore the consequences that would wreak on my self-esteem when I realized that the emotions would inevitably become involved and become meaningless as well. It was my faith that taught me that I deserve to be with someone who is entirely accepting of who I am on a personal level. It was my faith that opened my eyes in that, in that time to teach myself that I am more than just my looks and my body. It was worldly views that encouraged sex upon me in college, claiming it was harmless and good and made me feel alienated for disagreeing after what I went through. And all the hurt that illy led belief had put some of my closest friends through. I watched too many people stay with the wrong person because of the sexual connection. Too many people use it to try to save a relationship as it was falling apart, to think that it would get the other person to stay. Too many people to think that a, they could hook up and not fall for the other person, only to find that was not the case, but was the case for the other person. Too many people hurt from something worldly views said was okay. It was my faith that taught me that worldly views are not my inevitable reality. It was my anxiety and depression that taught me that nothing I did was enough, that my mistakes defined me, that I needed approval from others to be worth anything, and made it nearly impossible to forgive myself for the mistakes I used to define myself. It was my faith that taught me that no matter what I do, I will always have human dignity, that I can brush off the dust and start again, that my mistakes do not define me.
It was my anxiety and depression that said that I was worthless. It was my faith that taught me to remember whose daughter I was and straighten my crown. It was my anxiety and depression that misled me to think that life was not worth fighting another day for. It was my faith that taught me that not only is this life a worthy fight and full of joys, opposed to solely failure and hardship, but that I can be supremely happy in the next. My faith encourages me to defend my cat defend the Catholic Church and all the things it has taught me, and by doing so, taught me to stand up for myself, even as I feel I stand alone. As I learned self-discipline in my faith, I learned to stand up on my own and become stronger in my own self-identity, in my mental health capacity. To this day, I still have to have up and downs in my strength of my faith, but I have found that when I pull away from God, my ability to com combat my mental illness becomes more difficult, and I end up turning back to God to find my way out. I know that if I abandon or renounce my faith, when times become unexplainably tough, there will be nothing stopping me from abandoning or renouncing this life. So at this point, I felt that I could no longer explain the trauma or the panic attacks to the counselor without being misunderstood. I felt that since I wasn't assaulted or experiencing Catholic guilt, I was not allowed to be upset or feel the way I did. No one told me that or tried or truly implied it, but I was paranoid and on guard and already feeling uncomfortable and having my own per perceived judgments of myself prior to walking into that door. I left my first appointment feeling perhaps worse than before, and in two weeks I was asked to go back and I agreed because it was the only source of aid I had left. Furthermore, as time was passing and I was growing closer to potentially entering a relationship, I feared that my anxiety would drive me down the same path with Preston and treat him with the same irrational accusations and defensiveness I did with Seth. I was afraid that my own hurt that the intrusive thoughts inflicted and the paranoia would ruin another friendship or relationship, and I was tired of seeing it happen and feeling that I could, have, I could only blame myself in the end. This time I got a grad student as my counselor. She never suggested anything and only asked questions to help me think through my own situation. I talked about the way I feared my own friends had perceived me or afraid that they were upset before having any proof as she guided me through the issues with the way that I was thinking and the assumptions I was making as a defensive mechanism. I felt hopeful take, talking to the new counselor despite the session being short and only merely scratching the surface of all the issues I was confronting inside my head. Unfortunately, that is when the pandemic came in and I was no longer able to use the counseling center unless I used a telehealth call, but I was too afraid that my parents would overhear. Furthermore, I was only allowed to use the telehealth calls if I was located within the state at the time of the call, in which I would not have been since I was an out-of-state student. However, prior to the pandemic, I had shot my shot with Preston, and it did not work out. And perhaps it was because I got so up in my head with fear, or was tired of trying to make something work because I thought it was what I should want. But when it didn't work out, I was shocked to realize that it didn't hurt at all. I had realized that I wasn't ready to get back into dating, and I was actually okay with that. At the start of the pandemic, I turned to God. Eucharistic adoration was shut down momentarily, so I went to empty churches during the day and prayed alone in solitude. And although I knew I didn't have to be in a church to pray, it gave me the opportunity to be away from disruptions. I began journaling in a small black sketchbook as I organized my thoughts and for once began to sort through the feelings I was suppressing, much like I did when I was sorting through my thoughts with my friends after, after my sophomore year through prayer. I listed what I could forgive 
and gave Seth credit for all the good memories my mind was blocking and began to forgive myself since I realized I was young and immature and made some obvious mistakes. Furthermore, I accepted people make bad choices when they are mentally in bad places or bad situations. I had made mistake after mistake and lashed out as a result of suppressing how I actually felt, trying to force other feelings to replace what was real to me. Furthermore, I felt called to share my story as I began to realize that so many people didn't understand the extremes of my condition, especially the distorted perspectives. That is, that I can feel alone when I have everyone's support. That I can know my feelings, and particularly my fears and hurt, is often an illusion of my mind, and although I recognize that my fears are irrational and overanalyzed, no amount of knowing that can ever make the fears and the hurt less profound. So often, no one understands why things that seemingly have nothing to do with me upset me, but no one, no one understands the chain reactions of my intrusive thoughts as I attempt to be 10 steps ahead of any hurt to come. No one understands the interconnected web of everything that matters to me and how it is all tied to each other and that one tug of the heartstrings, one seemingly small incident, can send me tumbling like a house of cards. Most importantly, no one understands that I, as I express all the stupid small things that are so large to me that I know that the thoughts are irrational as they try and correct my thinking or become upset that I feel the way I do or react the way I did, that I am actually trying absolutely everything to change the way I feel and combat the irrationalness and seemingly inappropriate reaction by fighting the way I feel only to find that it makes me feel worse. I have always, my whole life, saw the result of people becoming upset with the fact that I was upset with what they considered small stupid things, and I learned to stay quiet and never learned how to communicate. So to this day, I suppress emotions and try to give them no power by invalidating them. I am never able to cope or feel better. So I wear the scars that I never left, let myself heal from and continue forward in hopes that I can also bear the next blow only to find myself weakened and closer to the brink of a mental breakdown. Each day, I learn the dangers of not allowing myself to feel my emotions. Emotions are not permanent and suppressing them and defying them makes them last longer and gives them the power to do more damage. I have come to learn the second I accept the fact that this is how I feel right now and stop resisting the feelings, I immediately feel the emotion lose power and control over me. I had always thought that if the emotions are unreasonable, I should combat them. But there is nothing wrong with, in fact, you have the right to feel the way you feel in response to a situation. You cannot control your feelings, although you can begin to learn how to control your response and how you react upon them. I share my story in hopes that if people understood, I know the thoughts are wrong, and that them telling me so and treating me as if I don't see it, or suggesting things that cast the thought meaninglessly aside, I feel more secluded and invalidated than before, that perhaps the next person who struggles with the same thing as me will be able to receive more help, that the next person will be able to be understood and never teach themselves to stay quiet or morph their emotions into what is expected by the world for them to feel. Listen to others, do not correct the way they feel, for feelings are not something we choose, and are fleeting things that we can more easily move past if we do not try to turn a temporary thing into something it is not. Ask others how they feel, do not tell them what you think they should feel or how they should react. Prayer led me to want to create this podcast, and research for the podcast during the pandemic became a substitute for the counseling sessions I was missing. 
Furthermore, I found that I was able to back up many of the things psychology says about mental health and how to react and respond to emotions with the readings from the Bible. So I was able to improve my mental health while simultaneously improving my faith. In conclusion, I have come to learn that invalidating my feelings was the largest cause of every trauma I have ever experienced, more so than the actual situation. So be patient with yourself and others. Allow yourself to feel exactly as you do, even if it is irrational, until the storm has passed. I'm sorry if this episode I kind of hammered in on the effects of hookup culture. I felt like I was trying to explain that in the very first episode, but I didn't get the reflection like I was a little unprepared for it. So I feel like I didn't explain it as well as I really wanted to. So I kind of overcompensated overcompensated in this episode. But if you're tired of hearing it, uh, this is the last episode that is brought up. But some of the things that I wanted to talk about in this episode was kind of the effects of trauma and how even seemingly minor things in your life can kind of have a huge impact. Um, I did mention some of the causes of trauma in a previous episode. Uh, There are, this is a limited list, like there's about 30 things on there, but there's other things in your life that could cause trauma or affect you negatively throughout your life. It's not properly handled. So I'm gonna just list through these really quickly since it's already been mentioned, and then I'll kind of go into depth about post-traumatic stress disorder, panic attacks, anxiety attacks, and things along those lines. So to start out, the types of uh, traumas can include physical and sexual assault, natural disasters, military combat or war, moving to a new location, severe injury, neglect, difficult breakup or divorce, any form of abuse, witnessing violence or death, car accidents, being a victim of crime, terrorist attacks, parental abandonment, death of a loved one, bullying, having an absent parent, chronic illness, community violence, loss of job or business, pregnancy loss, racial oppression, medical trauma, near-death experiences, cyberbullying, forced displacement, generational trauma, homelessness, systemic oppression, traumatic birth, harassment, discrimination, animal attacks, infertility, and poverty. So, uh, PTSD, it's, I'm going to go over it mostly because of the car accident. I hadn't, I don't, it was never diagnosed as PTSD, but I did have a lot of the same, uh, symptoms and it still kind of lingers to this day a little bit, although it is a little bit better. It affects one out of 11 Americans, especially veterans or first responders. And with COVID, a lot of healthcare providers are beginning to see a lot, like you're seeing a lot more healthcare providers uh, develop PTSD because of the increase amount of like deaths and with the pandemic co- uh, coming around. I forget which website I pulled this off of, but... People living with PTSD experience longer and more extreme stress and more extreme stress reactions to trauma than the average person. Symptoms include intrusive and upsetting thoughts, trouble concentrating, continual agitation, difficulty sleeping, and lack of interest or lack of interest in once enjoyable activities. This next one I pulled off of Stay Safe Foundation 
And I have the link in my notes and I'm hoping that once I get the website up, I can put that link in there if you wanna look a little further into it. A diagnosis of PTSD requires a discussion with a trained professional and symptoms of PTSD generally fall into these broad categories. Uh, these categories would include re-experiencing the types of symptoms uh, such as reoccurring involuntary or intrusive distressing memories that can include flashbacks of the trauma, bad dreams, and intrusive thoughts. The next one would be avoidance, which can include staying away from certain situations or places or objects that remind you of the event. A person may avoid a place or a person that might activate overwhelming symptoms. So, for example, like the cars, I would avoid getting in a car if I didn't have to. I know the first couple weeks of college, I always went back home. But after the car accident, I pretty much stayed Ball State for the till the end of the semester, which I only had a few weeks left. But it was just to avoid getting in a car and also avoiding like a person that might activate some of those overwhelming symptoms. I was always avoiding Seth by like not going to parties or bars that I was afraid that I might see him at. I'm not saying like I had PTSD from what happened between us. I think a lot of it was I wasn't processing things myself. And so I was just doing a lot of avoidance and an anxiety term, not PTSD. Uh, another category of the symptoms would be cognitive and mood symptoms, which can cause troubling recalling of the event, negative thoughts of oneself. And a person may feel numb, guilty, worried, or depressed, or have difficulty remembering the traumatic event. Uh, cognitive symptoms can, in some instances, in extend to include out-of-body experiences or feel feeling that the world is not real, also known as derealization. De and I will mention derealization a few times in this reflection, but I will go a little more into derealization in, I believe, the next episode. Um, another category would be arousal of symptoms, which such as hypervigilance. This would be when I was in cars where I felt like I had to be watching the uh, road and constantly looking out for any potential dangers, even if I was not the one driving. Uh, examples might include being intensively startled by a stimuli that, result, that resembles the trauma, trouble sleeping, or outburst of anger. PTSD is directly connected to our evolutionary survival instincts, which allow us to identify a threat and be prepared to fight it or run away from it. Uh, once this alarm goes off, a potential cocktail of hormones rush our symptoms and get us ready to survive. Everyone has a threshold of how much of this fight or uh, fight cocktail in their body can experience without a problem. So you can be stimulated by small events without it being an issue. It becomes an issue when it's disrupting your, li uh, your life. The average person will experience four traumatic events in their lifetime, but the average first responder will experience over 200 in their careers. I was recently talking to someone who they do the EMT and now they're like a firefighter and they're talking about a few of the things that they've seen on their jobs. And it's it kind of surprises me that the number's only in an average of 200 because he hasn't been doing it for very long. I think it's only been like a year and he's already had several events that are very difficult to see. Once an individual has passed their particular threshold and their body begins to rewiring the nervous system to prepare for a higher frequency of threats the body can now perceive as likely to, likely to occur. Uh, the body believes that what it is doing is 
what is best to keep you alive. Unfortunately, this highly active threat perception system is now activated whether the individual is in a threatening situation or not. Time does not heal PTSD. Your brain literally rewired its nervous system, and one could argue that time makes untreated PTSD worse. Even the most strong-willed trauma survivors will not be able to will their uh, way away. I don't know. know. I'm just reading off the paper right now, but that's why it's particularly important to seek help and try to navigate through some of the traumatic experiences or things that you're having difficulties with because it doesn't get better with time. And I think that's a stigma that I discussed in an earlier episode. What doesn't kill you doesn't necessarily make you stronger and time doesn't really heal all wounds. You have to be able to confront it and process it. And a lot of that can be aided through the help of a professional. Now we'll go on to the symptoms of panic attacks. There is a difference between panic attacks and anxiety attacks. Panic attacks are more sudden and really intense burst and they'll pass after a few minutes usually, where anxiety is more of this constant state of distress and worry that will last, it can, I don't know, it can last up to like a few months. And I'll kind of get into that a little bit, but panic attacks, some of the symptoms I have 10 listed and I've honestly experienced every single one of these at some point. One would be hyperventilation where you feel like you can't catch your breath Another would be dizziness, tunnel vision, which the tunnel vision can be kind of scary once you get into it because you can't really see what's around you. You can only see like directly what's in front of you. And I had a lot of that as I was walking back from Raising Canes in Columbus and trying to walk back to my sister's house. Chest pains, which is kind of caused by that hyperventilation and racing heartbeats. Uh, Nausea, which kind of goes hand in hand with the dizziness hot and cold flashes, sweating, paresthesia, I believe that's how it's pronounced. This is probably, I was talking to my sister a few days ago. This is actually one of the weirdest symptoms that I get. And it's like the tingling, burning, or prickling of the skin or a limb falling asleep. When my anxiety, like when my panic attacks kick in, I can't feel like the vein, like the, I don't know, the top of your forearm, like right at your wrist. It gets like really tingly and I just feel like I'm just staring at my wrist and stuff like that the whole time because I'm trying to like, it's, I don't know, it's a weird feeling and I never really heard people talk about how they lose feelings in their limbs, but that's something that I do experience actually more often than you'd expect. Um, The fight or flight response is another symptom, which is a cause of adrenaline production and that's kind of goes back to what the PTSD symptoms we're talking about, where your body's trying to kick in its survival instincts. And what that can do is they can increase your pulse, increase your breathing, which can cause chest pains or the hyperventilation. And your sight and hearing become sharper, which can cause sensory overload and lead to agitation or aggression. The last one is derealization, which is a dissociation from the external world or an alternate perception that makes everything feel unreal, causing withdrawal or a distorted perception of time and space. And that's just a very brief summary of what derealization is. And I have a lot of that with more like my my anxiety attacks when they're prolonged, where like several days I feel like I can't talk to like other people or when I'm trying to talk about a situation or what I'm going through, 
Nothing I say feels like it can actually describe what I'm feeling. And then what people are telling me to like comfort me just feels like it just feels like it's not getting through because I don't feel connected to the world around me at that point. Uh, nocturnal panic attacks is also another thing that I've experienced a lot during my freshman year of college. And a lot of it was, first off, I've got a lot of these things for about nocturnal panic attacks from DXL Anxiety, which is an Instagram account, which I highly encourage you guys to check out if you suffer from anxiety. It can offer a lot of insight onto some of the things that you may be experiencing and helps you kind of understand it a little better. It is caused when the brain is not able to turn off during sleep. So pent up worries and anxieties manifest in the unconscious brain causing nocturnal panic attacks. If they get severe enough, they can be known as night terrors or nightmares. They can occur while you're asleep and when you wake up and often have the same symptoms as daytime panic attacks that were just listed before. They usually only last for a few minutes, but they can take a long time for you to calm down enough to go back to sleep and can cause further anxiety about whether another one will occur when you fall back to sleep and can lead to insomnia over time. If you ever experience a nocturnal panic attack, just or really any panic attack, don't fight it. Like just accept the panic attack for what it is and allow the feelings to wash over you, which seems like a little backwards, but it's just a temporary thing and it will fade if you just allow it to happen and you aren't constantly trying to fight it or hide it. Another suggestion is you could try a breathing exercise since you do get a lot of hyperventilation and more rapid breathing in the times of panic attacks. And they encourage that if you wake up in the middle of the night, it's okay to get up and do something and don't go back to sleep until you feel that you are ready. And getting up and doing something kind of distracts you enough that you can calm down and finally fall back to sleep. Because losing sleep will only make mental illnesses or anxiety worse because you're not well rested enough to fight it or continue the in the next day. So you can't let it affect your sleep cycle by forcing yourself to go back to sleep when you're not ready. You'll sleep a lot better if you work through it before falling back to sleep. Um, anxiety attacks, uh, they're usually, the symptoms are related to the anticipation of a stressful situation, experience or event that may come on and it may come on gradually. This would kind of like be an example of when I was anticipating that football game and for the about a month and a half, the symptoms just got worse and worse as I was like in constant fear, but it wasn't one event that was tr like triggering it in a huge burst. So it's not a panic attack, but I still experienced overwhelming sense of panic throughout that month, just prolonged. And I felt like I was no longer in control uh, dizziness or feeling that you could pass out is another symptom of an anxiety attack. Shortness of breath or hyperventilation. Uh, panic attacks are kind of included in anxiety attack, although they're different. Hot flashes and getting chills. Oh, and they're mostly associated with restlessness, fear, distress, and worry. The restlessness and like the fear, the last four things I just mentioned, those are only with anxiety attacks where the physical symptoms can they're associated with both panic attacks and anxiety attacks. And it's really just the time that differentiates the two. And I wanted to keep this reflection fairly brief since the narrative was really long today. 
So I'll finish up with, oh, actually, let me go back and actually wrap up uh, some of the other things. Our Instagram account, as mentioned before, is moralistory.podcast. Uh, and I'll keep updates on the website and the episodes on that account. And it's my main way of communication. Our Twitter, which I, I'll be honest, I don't use it as much, is moral underscore podcast. We do have a Patreon. The link is in the, like, I guess the bio, not really the bio, the description of the episode, as well as our the link to our website. The website is also in the bio of our Instagram. And if you have any listener stories, you can send that to moralistory.podcast2021 at gmail.com. And lastly, the moral of the story that I have today is, it was from a Twitter post, so I don't know exactly where this originated from. Otherwise, I would give them the credit. And I think it just summarizes a lot of the stigmas that people have about, oh, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger or time heals all wounds. And the post said, here's to all the people whose trauma did not give them thick skin. The ones who became more sensitive and insecure, who cry more easily, who get overwhelmed at small things. I'm so tired of the narrative that trauma makes you tough and untouchable. We are survivors and not superheroes. And that's the moral of the story. Thank you for listening, and I hope you tune in next week. Thank you.